on. Come on. Hey, those of you that know, uh, I'm telling you, we're, our theme launch is a big deal for us. By the way, Pastor Omar is having his theme launch today. So Jesus be with him now in Jesus' name. He's getting ready to start. No, it's kind of fun, man. I'm telling you, this is, this is where he has believed, just like us, that we're going to launch out this next year into a season that's going to really fulfill what God's been speaking to us. I'm so excited to unveil that next weekend. Uh, this weekend, I want you to know, look around. There's signs that are no longer on walls. It's on purpose. You know, it would have been nice to polish everything up. We wanted to leave it a little bit, uh, well, not like it's going to look next week. So, so look around. Uh, if any of you are free this next Wednesday in the afternoon, or we're going to hang up a bunch of stuff, so come and be around and help us out. But we're excited about our theme, where God's bringing us to, but I think it's important that we remember where we've come from, and really excited about our theme that we're currently in. We started a two-week series this last weekend. I don't know if you remember we're here. Many of you were here this last weekend, but really we were, we were really wanting to launch out into a kind of putting a bow on this theme that we're currently in. The theme we're in right now is called Your Move. And we believed that God was leading us into a moment to remember what it was that we were supposed to be doing in this theme, tie a bow upon it so we can move into our launch this next weekend. So will you join me as we uh, finish this weekend up and get ready to launch into next weekend? Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Man, we need you so much, God. I think more than I've ever known before. I know we need you a lot, but I just have this urgency in my heart, God, that is just beating in my chest. Lord, I pray that we would be clear on what you're saying. We need you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to pause for a second. I don't know if you realize what church is really all about. Maybe you do, and uh, I, I remember as a little kid going to church. I would go to church because it was something I thought I needed to do. When I would go to church, I was hoping that I would get something, some, some, some meal or something that I would take home with me, and church was going to be this moment where I would have some sort of a, 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 a something I could chew on all week long, and so I'd always hoped that the person up there doing all the talking would give me something to hang on to. Maybe that's the case for you today. Maybe that's why you're here at church. You know, church to me is really today different. I believe church as the, as the one who's doing the yapping. I kind of feel like my job is to, is to do really one thing. It's not to feed you. My job is really to equip you. See, the Bible says that the, the job of the preaching of the Word of God is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Sometimes we get it backwards and we think the job of the preaching is to somehow make us kind of fat and happy and just make us like, well, give me a little meal, preacher, and I, I'm going to tell you that, that the real goal of this whole preaching thing is to equip you. You understand that? He equip you. I tell my staff all the time, what are we here for? We're here to equip. We're, we're basically, we're, we're here to, to instruct and to equip so that we can take what we're getting out of here into a world that's lost and dying and hurting and desperately in need. Oh, and by the way, that it would transform us as well. This last week we started a series called Borrowed Ground. Borrowed Ground. I loved it. It came out of a series that uh, Pastor Kari came up here a few minutes ago and she shared a little bit about this she just lobbed off this comment about, about crossing the desert and moving into the land of promise, and that in that process, there was this moment of borrowed ground. And, and I was listening to the message online, and it just struck me. I just couldn't shake those two words, borrowed ground. And it made me really stop and think, are we living life on borrowed ground? Or are we really living life in the land of promise that God had intended us to live in? 
I think far too many of us are living in this place that's it's near the promised land. It's close to it. We could see it. We could even smell the fruit of the land. And some of us have come to the place where, like, I desire the land of promise. But far too many of us are living in this arid, dry, uh, kind of a hope for the future, but not necessarily thinking it'll actually ever happen kind of lifestyle. I'm here to tell you that it's time for us to move past that and to move into a land of promise. If you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3. A little background. Remember, Joshua was the successor to Moses. Moses was the one who led the original slaves, those who were in bondage in Egypt, out of Egypt. He led them out of this place that was horrific, this place that was hopeless, this place that had no future. It was a place where uh, their babies would be born already enslaved in, in Egypt. Moses led them out. He was the deliverer out of Egypt into a place that would prepare them to receive their promise. So at this point, Moses leads them out. And while they're out there wandering around in the wilderness or in the desert, some of us know it as, as we're wandering around in the wilderness, Moses comes to the place where he says, through a long chain of events, and for the sake of time, I won't get there, but basically says, my time is done. I'm handing the baton off to my successor, Joshua. After 40-some years, Joshua now comes to take the reins to lead the children of Israel into a promised land. This was the land that, that they were going to inherit that was promised to their parents who left out of Egypt as slaves, now being handed to their children who were children of those slaves. It says in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Then Joshua told the people, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. In the morning, Joshua said to the priest, Lift up the Ark of the Covenant, lead the people across the river. And so they started out, basically, to the promised land. So what's the promised land? We talked about this last week a little bit. What is the promised land? I love the Bible, man. There's so much in the Bible that shows us picture after picture, illustration after illustration, a symbolism after symbolism of of a one message that God wants us to see. Literally, I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible has one message. People have asked me before, how come it doesn't say this in the Bible about this or that or this or that or this? You know, why... Can I tell you this? It's like if you were going to write a manual on how to fix your car, you wouldn't talk about how to make a quilt somewhere in the first chapter. You talk about a car. Can I tell you the message of the Bible is one message. I'm telling you, all the books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, the Pentateuch, all the way through the whole thing of the Revelation, I'm telling you, it was all literally about one thing, that we were desperately lost and enslaved in sin and needed to find a Savior to be brought back into relationship with God. Amen. That's the message of the Bible. It isn't about how to make a quilt or where the stars come from or where the this or that or whatever the uh, why. All the things that we just seem to think we need to know. The message, I love how God just takes these books of the Bible and says, I'm going to try to make it super simple and make it one message. And the process of that one message comes out a lot of different ways in terms to communicate that thing. The promised land was one of those moments. It was the Old Testament. It was the time before Jesus. It was way back in the day. The Old Testament, there was a promise. The promised land was this. The Bible says it was a land of milk and overflowing of milk and honey. Remember what you would be like if you were living in an arid, dry, wilderness, desert land. And you heard that there was the promise of something far greater than this. But you actually had a hope of something that was 
Well, flowing with something other than sand. I mean, there would be something you'd just be like, amen, bring it on, right? So the children of Israel are getting wind. They're, 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 they're the children of the children of Israel. They're excited about the fact that they can one day possess this land, this promised land. Joshua and Caleb were two of these people that came back and said, we've been there. It's amazing. It's not like you think it was. It's, it's better than that. Let's go take the land. Listen to this. By the way, the promised land symbolized stability, security, identity. Let's go on. It says Joshua chapter 3, verse 13. Read this last week, but it bears repeating. It says, The priest will be carrying the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. When their feet touch the water, the flow of the water will be cut off upstream, and the river will, and the, and the river will pile up there in a heap. When the people sit out across the Jordan, the priests who were carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now it was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water on the river's edge, the water began piling up, began piling up at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed down to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. All the people crossed over near the city of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the ark of the Lord's covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed, As the people passed them by, they awaited there until everyone had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Get this, guys. There's literally over a half a million people who who went from slavery in bondage to this desert land. And while they're there in this desert land, their parents all pass away. Now all of those guys who were at that point 20 years and younger, all now, nearly 500 to 600,000 of them, are ready to cross over into this promised land that they had heard about. This promised land, this land overflowing with milk and honey, this land that, that, that had something in it that needed to be removed for them to possess it. It wasn't like this promised land was sitting vacant, waiting with weeds growing. The promised land was populated by somebody. We talked, we talked last week about the somebodies that were populating the promised land. Well, we know those guys as the giants that were in the land. I love this. The promised land. What does the promised land symbolize to you and me? Some people have thought that the promised land was an Old Testament picture of the New Testament picture of heaven. That somehow we're leaving this horrible desert place to going to this wonderful place, just like leaving earth and going to heaven. I think it's a great illustration, but the problem is there's a lot of breakdowns in that story. What I mean by that is this. I think there's definitely an illustration that we're supposed to look at with the promised land being a wonderful place to be. But in terms of the promised land being heaven, I think it falls apart. I don't think that the promised land spoken of in the Old Testament was a New Testament picture of heaven. I think that the promised land spoken of in the Old Testament was a New Testament picture of something other than heaven. I think it was something to do about our spiritual journey. Why do I say that? Because heaven isn't going to be fraught with giants, for one. Heaven's not going to be filled with a bunch of ites that you have to defeat while you're there. Someone say amen. amen. And by the way, number two is this. Well, uh, there, were, <laughs> there were lots of pathways across the Jordan River to get into the promised land. The Bible says there is only one way. By the way, contrary to what other people in our world would like to think, there really is still only one way to get to heaven. You realize that? It's not like there are many ways. I was watching a show last night where this guy just flipped off this idea that, hey, just pick a color. You get to decide, and then you get to go wherever. Heaven, just pick a path. Just pick whatever you want. And I was like, no, there's only one way. There was only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. Any other way is just a nice, sweet try. But it ain't going to work. 
People don't like it when you talk like that. But I'm telling you the truth. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible also says that the road is narrow. We kind of tend to think that the road's super wide. I think if there's one thing that the church of Jesus Christ has let die away in our journeys with him is the fear of God. The idea that there's this, that not the fear of God that causes you to run around thinking he's going to squish you with this thumb every minute. But church, let me tell you this. I think there's a little bit of the fear of God that we have forgotten. We want Jesus to be our best friend and our buddy and our, and our blesser of all of our blessings. Can I tell you this? He's our savior. He's our master. We are his doulos. We are his servants. We are his doulos. That's a Greek word for slave. We are coming to him saying, God, we belong to you. I give up my rights. I feel so angry today. I don't know what to do. It's not really angry. I just kind of feel passionate. I feel like it's important that we stop and realize that we can't live in this this place of kind of anymore. That there's a moment when we have to stand and say, listen, enough is enough. And we've got to begin to walk out this thing we call our faith or not. I don't think when we get to heaven, God's going to go like, well, you know what? Grading on a curve, you're okay. See, when we get to heaven, God's going to say, listen, in or out, believe or not believe, right or wrong, left or right, sheep or goat. Your Bible says that. Come on. I'm either going to grow this church or shrink it. One or the other. I'm telling you. <laughs> Come on. New Testament promised land is a place, I believe, of spiritual maturity. I believe it's a place of spiritual maturity. And I think it's a place that many of us still have yet to get to. I think that the promised land for the New Testament is a place of spiritual power. It's a, it's a place of spiritual strength. It's a place of spiritual gifts. It's a place that we're supposed to walk into as mature Christians and mature believers. And might I just admit to you that I believe that often as Christians, we decide that that's just too much of a fight. And we want to live and exist somehow on the east side of the Jordan River, out in the desert, just thinking it's enough. It's just enough. I'm saved. It's just enough. I think that's fine. I'm here to tell you that God has something so much more for us There is a land overflowing with milk and honey for you and I as Christians that he wants us to grow into in a place of maturity. I told you last week that there were giants in the Old Testament promised land, that there were the Amalekites, the Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Perizzites, and Girgashites. Those were the names of the tribes that were there in in the, the promised land of the Old Testament. And I gave you a couple of definitions that certainly don't have time for today, but I would just tell you that those ites that are in the land of promise in the Old Testament all have New Testament meanings and definitions. So just for the sake of time, I will tell you the Amorites actually by definition mean pride. Hittites, by definition, compromise. Hivites, fear. Jebusites, oppression. Canaanites, shame. Perizzites, indecision. And Girgashites, faithlessness. Uh, that's a lot in, in one just quick moment I can tell you. If you want more definition on that, I could give it to you. Certainly email the office and we'll just shoot it out to you, all the research I did on these names. But I'm here to tell you that I think as, as, as those guys left the land of, of wilderness and they crossed over into the, the Jordan River and into the land of promise, they were going to face pride and compromise and fear and shame and indecision. They were going to face all of those things, these giants that symbolized all of those things. See, every one of us as Christians have to experience the same things in our life. 
Those, those giants needed to be subdued and destroyed. In the same way in our own lives, there are places in our lives that things that need to be absolutely eradicated from our lives. Pride, indecision, fear, shame, compromise, all of those things need to be absolutely eradicated from our life. Why? When we do that, we begin to move into a place of spiritual maturity. And far too often, we're like, nah, I got enough, that's fine. I just am here to tell you that there's so much more that God wants us to live in. So what about this borrowed ground? What is this borrowed ground? Last week I told you the borrowed ground was like the dry riverbed of the Jordan River. I'd even go so far as to say I think that the borrowed ground is the dry riverbed of the Jordan River and the wilderness before it. I don't think God intended any of us to live in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan River. I don't think his intention was for us to just exist in a wilderness kind of meandering around, bumping around, and, and just kind of existing in our church-going ways. I think God's intention for us all along was for us to grow up into a place of maturity, to move on into this place of healthy, right, empowered relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet far too many of us, in my opinion, just settle. Settle for what's on the east side of the Jordan River. Settle for what's sitting there. Settle for just somehow we can just meander around and make it through. And I'm here to tell you that I don't think that's living it at all. I think there's so much more that God has for us as New Testament believers. I think some of us have gotten stuck in the borrowed ground. We've gotten stuck in our faith. I think we try so hard to live a life with the least amount of complications as possible. We pay our bills, we serve at church, we go back to our homes, we try to keep our families happy, completely focused on our personal trials and pain and avoiding it as all possible. I think far too many of us are unaffected by the lostness of the people around us. We're unaffected by the people that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. See, I've said this before, my pastor Tom, who used to pastor this church 30-some years ago, told me this. He said, Lance, if you want to fall in love with Jesus more, if you want to fall more in love with who God is, let me tell you this, then fall in love with that which he's in love with, lost people. And I feel like we've lost sight of who lost people are because we just, ooh, ick, ooh, ick. We don't want to get in touch with them. We don't want to go near them because we're going to get something on us. And yet Jesus, when we read in our Bibles, you ever notice you read your Bibles, and like he was in the midst of all of them. He was hanging out with the lepers and, and those who were hurting, the, the, those, who were, those who had life all over them, Jesus hung out with. You know who Jesus didn't hang out with? Church guys. He usually rebuked them. Or should I say, he, maybe, he, he, maybe if we were there, he would have rebuked us. I don't know, just thought. Borrowed ground. Some of us actually think that borrowed ground is where we're supposed to live. Hmm. I think the Bible is filled with symbols. I think over and over we read our Bibles, it's filled with symbols and filled with pictures of stuff God wants us to see. Uh, let me explain. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. They were, they were in bondage in Egypt, literally there. They were making bricks from mud and straw. That was their existence. And they built things for the Pharaoh. They, they built up all of Egypt and all the craziness that goes on. In fact, I was watching the Discovery Channel a while back and they were saying, wow, it's weird. All these bricks were made a certain way and who would have made these bricks anyway? I'm like, hey, you can stop and I don't know who, other than I think the children of Israel had something in, in that whole thing in Egypt. Who knows? But I can tell you that a lot, of the, a lot of the craziness that was going on then was on the backs of God's people. 
that was going on. Now, as we move forward, they were, the Bible says, delivered from slavery. They were delivered from the bondage because God sent a deliverer. His name was Moses. Moses was sent as the deliverer of the children of Israel to remove them from the bondage and slavery to a salvation moment. Does that mean they got saved? Well, I'm not saying they got saved. I'm saying in that point that they, it was a picture for us to look back to. Children of Israel were in bondage. They were set free. It's almost like we as New Testament Christians can look back and go, oh, that's just like us. We were lost and caught in our own fleshly slavery and bondage, and Jesus came to deliver us. We can look back and go, oh, he removed them from all of that crazy pain and expectation to bring them to a place where they'll eventually inherit something really special. Egypt is for you and I, like New Testament believers, akin to surrendering our life and salvation to Jesus, accepting the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, leaving slavery behind us. So what about the crossing of the Red Sea? Remember after they left, they, they left Egypt and there was a moment where they ended up crossing over the Red Sea? Symbolism. What is the symbolism of the crossing of the Red Sea? Moses holds up his staff and then the waters part and the children of Israel walk through and as they walk through or ran through or whatever through, they got through and the Bible says the waters closed up behind him and crushed Pharaoh's army. They were redeemed and all is good, right? What does the Red Sea symbolize to you and I as New Testament believers? My opinion, water baptism. The, the, relief, the leaving of going across the Red Sea wasn't what saved them. What saved them was Moses delivering them from Egypt. Going through the waters on the Red Sea was just a sign to the rest of everyone else on the planet that they were, it's just like you and I in water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save you. It just tells everyone that you have been saved. Amen. It's just a beautiful picture. So as you look in the Old Testament, we're like, oh, I see where you're going with this, God. I see. I'm telling you, there's always a dual purpose. There's always a dual message in the Bible. And it's, to me, it's so fun to plow around and think like, oh, that's crazy. So it's almost as if this deliverance from slavery and bondage is like you and I surrendering our lives to Christ. And then this walking through the Red Sea is like you and I walking through the waters of baptism. Huh. Now they're running around for a bunch of years in this wilderness. What is that akin to? <laughs> For you and I. They're walking around in the wilderness. What happened in the wilderness? Well, God showed up in the wilderness in pretty amazing ways. He provided for them like crazy manna that would come down from heaven. Manna was this, whatever it was, landed on the ground and they ate it every single day. It was God's way to provide for them. They needed water. Moses hit the rock. Water poured out of the, of the rock and, and gave them drink. They needed meat. God made quail fall down from heaven up to their thighs with dead birds. Hallelujah. I guess, I don't know, I mean, like, craziness, right? All this stuff had happened in this whole wandering around the wilderness. The law was given to them, Ten Commandments. All of this happened in their journeying around, in their, get this, in their salvation moment of running around in the desert. They had walked through the waters of baptism, and now they're learning how to walk out their faith. When all of these things happen, God's provision, God's instruction, uh, the, the water from the rock, who's the rock that you and I know of? Jesus fed them water, living water from the rock. All the symbols, and you're looking at it going like, ah, I see where you're going with this. And you can see that the symbol of this promised land coming had not yet happened. So they left bondage and slavery. They were in this moment of walking through the waters of baptism. Now they experience this wandering around in the wilderness. Hmm. 
The wandering around in the wilderness to me is kind of interesting because it's akin to you and I like this. Uh, they, they left Egypt behind, but the wandering around in Egypt wasn't about them continuing to leave Egypt. The wandering around in, in, in the wilderness wasn't about them leaving Egypt any longer. It was about, it was about them letting Egypt get out of them. See, they got out of Egypt, but Egypt was still alive in them. See, some of us surrender our lives to Christ, but our lifestyle still is inside of us. See, some of us uh, leave a gang lifestyle, but you get saved and everything's wonderful, but you still got to get the gang lifestyle out of you. Some of us uh, surrender our lives to Christ because we're an angry person. You gave your life to Christ and you experience the peace of God, hallelujah, but you got to spend a little bit of time getting the angry out of you. Some of us find ourselves in addiction and in that moment. You surrender your life to Christ. God sets you free from that addiction, perhaps. I don't know. But you spend some time trying to get the addiction back out of you. You got out of addiction, but then that has to get all of those things. The symbol is very clear to me. They got out of Egypt, but they wandered around in the desert getting Egypt out of them. Might I be so bold as to say that some of us today still have Egypt running around in our hearts? See, you remember reading the Old Testament and you'd bump into these stories in, in, the, in the Old Testament where these guys would be like, you know what? It was so great being in bondage and slavery in Egypt. We should go back. Because all this crazy provision from God is horrible. That's total tongue in cheek. But you know what I'm talking about. Like there's this idea. We get that way, right? Sometimes you look back to the glorious days of bondage. And enslaved. And we feel like somehow that was better. Oh, the good old days of living for myself. <laughs> you see, that's what happened. They had, to get Egypt, they had to get Egypt out of them because they were gotten out of Egypt. The promised land, I told you before, the promised land to them symbolized them leaving, leaving this desert, arid, dry place, leaving this borrowed land, leaving this place of immaturity, if you will, and moving into a place of maturity. The promised land, what was there? In the promised land, it was a land flowing of milk and honey and promise, their identity, security, it also meant it was a land filled with giants that needed to be removed, battles that needed to be fought. The promised land for you and me, in my opinion, symbolized something special. It symbolized something that was, well, maturity, empowered living, a, a right relationship with God. Because you remember, when they moved into the promised land, guess what happened? The manna stopped flowing. The manna stopped falling down from heaven when they went into the promised land. I don't know if you remember this, and I feel like I'm be rushing along here, but when the children of Israel, this is interesting to me, when they crossed over the Jordan River, this is the children of the children of Israel with Joshua, they crossed over the Jordan River, they do this little thing that I could explain if I had time, but they, they took rocks out of the Jordan River and piled them up, then they piled up a bunch of rocks, and 12 to be sure, because there were 12 tribes, 12 tribes, 12 rocks in the middle of the river, they took out, and then they piled up another 12 rocks in the Jordan River's riverbed. The, the, get, when the children of Israel crossed over, the Bible says the water started to flow again. I was wondering, why would you pile up a bunch of rocks in the middle of a river that no one would ever see? Symbol. The symbol was this, is that the, it symbolized their death in the Jordan River. It symbolized that there was going to be a washing over and forever that would always be covered. It was as if God was leading them into a land of promise covered and provided for. The children of Israel get to the other side of the Jordan River and on that side, there's a big pile of 12 rocks there. They're all sitting there in a big camp in this place called Gilgal. And as they're sitting there, they can see Jericho right off in the distance. 
And then God says this to all of the the men who are battled, 40,000 plus, who are all there getting ready to take the land of promise. They just crossed the Jordan River. It's now flowing back at flood stage. They're super excited because they saw God show up in a big way. And God says, now, everybody, drop your pants. Circumcise everyone. Thoughts? (laughs) I'm like, God, that's a horrible plan. Why would you do that then? I mean, circumcise them before on that side of the river when they, uh, the enemy can't look at them. They could see the enemy. The enemy could see them with their pants down. Being circumcised. Dear Jesus, what does that mean? There's got to be, yeah, ow. <laughs> what does that mean? You know what it means? Remember, circumcision, though it was the cutting away of the flesh, it was literally, to you and I, the cutting away of the flesh. They were going to cut, be, be cut away. It was going to require the, the pain. It was going to require the healing. It was going to require the, oh, help me, Jesus. It was going to require all of that moment for a length of time as they laid absolutely vulnerable in front of the enemy. And God would have to protect them. Just like you and I, the Bible says that there's a circumcision of our heart that God is doing to us as we move into our promise that there's a cutting away of the flesh we become vulnerable to the enemy. We become absolutely, well, powerless in our own strength. I just love this picture. Is this making sense? I love the picture of this leaving this bondage and moving into this land of promise and then finding themselves at this massive, desperate place. We know what happened in their, uh, their, their, their battle of Jericho, if you will. The battle of Jericho. Remember what that was, right? Walk around Jericho a bunch of times. And on the seventh day, blow a really loud horn and yell, and then the walls are going to fall down. Right? So what I describe Jericho battle as is not much of a battle at all. To me, the battle of Jericho was a walk and a yell. (laughs) They needed to recover. There was an empowering that happened as they crossed the Jordan River. I think some of us have forgotten that there's a promised land for us. And we found ourselves literally hanging out in this borrowed land, not wanting to move along into this promised land. And somehow we've decided to just hang out, forgetting that there was an entire generation that didn't move into the land of promise because they didn't trust or believe God for it. Their parents. Hmm. What is this Jordan River thing? I don't have time to expand on this. I will in a few weeks. But I think if we're going to go with symbols that the leaving of Egypt, that the wandering in the wilderness, that the promised land was this, what, what, was this, what was this Jordan River? Personally, I think the Jordan River was a New Testament, was an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. I'm going to talk about this in a few weeks. I think it was an Old Testament picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit where they would move into the land of promise filled with power, filled with courage, filled with strength, and completely vulnerable before Jesus and the enemy. Because the battles wouldn't be theirs, it would be the Lord's. I think the crossing of the Jordan River was this symbol of them being empowered, of them being a, a place of literally, how do, why do I know that? Because remember the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses lifted his hand up and God did all the work. 
in the crossing of the River Jordan, what happened? God told the priest to walk out into the water, and then the water would start to pile up. There was an effort on their behalf. They literally had to walk out into it. It's just like you and I in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is that that is, and we'll talk about that in weeks to come. There was an empowering that required your decision to walk out into and yield your life to the power of the Spirit of God. There's something that God wants to do in our midst because if we're going to walk into a place of spiritual maturity, we have to walk into a place of spiritual maturity, including the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Amen. I got three of you there. Like I just threw a curveball over your head. Forgive me. I think the Bible has meaning in every detail. I think this season that God has us in as a church is a season that he wants us to, to take up our cross and follow him. I think it's a season where he wants us to say, am I serious about my faith? I think it's a season of us saying, will I continue to just kind of bump my way through life, hoping that tragedy doesn't hit me, but it's okay if it hits someone else? I think we're at a season of life where God is saying, enough is enough. If you really believe this stuff, then take up your cross and follow me. Give all that you have. Serve all that you can. Be all that God wants you to be as we continue to walk and follow him with all that we are. And what's going to happen as we move into this land of promise there's going to be some battles. There's going to be some battles with some of the enemies that fight you, your pride, your, your, your fear, your indifference, shame, all of those things that have been nipping at your heels. And far too many of us have been living in this land of uh, borrowed ground thinking, well, I guess it's just the Christian life. I can't wait to get to heaven when all of that's gone. Remember, the goal of you becoming a Christian wasn't just to get you to heaven. The goal of you becoming a Christian was to live a life and life more abundant here as we move into heaven. Learning how to walk this thing out. This picture that we have of of this Christian walk here on earth, I think it's far different than we think it is. And there's a level that God wants us to walk in of yielding our lives. I think sometimes when we think we've made the decision to surrender our life to Christ, that that was enough. It's enough to save you for sure. Yes, amen. You're saved and going to heaven. But I think there's a life more abundant that God's intending for us to walk out that we just kind of think, nah, I guess I'll just take it from here, God. Hmm. So what does this mean for you and me? I think there's a decision that needs to be made. The decision is, do I continue to live in a land of compromise where I play with sin, sin plays with me, where I allow Egypt to remain in my heart, or will I finally come to the place where I say enough is enough? I can't continue to live here with one foot in the borrowed ground and one foot in, a, in, in, in the River Jordan getting ready to cross into a land of promise. I think there's a decision moment that every one of us needs to cross into, but it's a decision that we have to make personally. Amen. Can we pray? Father, this morning we come before you. Lord, I I believe with all of my heart that there are men and women sitting in here today who don't even know you. They might know you in their head, I'm sure, God. I I know they know you in their head, but Lord, I'm not sure if they know you in their hands and feet and heart. Lord, I think I would be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity for somebody today to surrender their life to you. I would be absolutely, I think, disobedient if I didn't say, I want to give an opportunity for you today to surrender your life to Christ. If you're here today and you don't know if you're a Christian, you don't know today if you were to die and stand before God, if you would actually make it into heaven. If that's you this morning, I want you to say, it's me. I I want to know for sure. 
The Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know for sure that you're saved. And today, maybe that's you and you're realizing I need to surrender my life to you. If that's you, then right now just say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I surrender my life to you completely. Take away my sin and fill me with your spirit. Go ahead, just between you and him. You and him, Jesus, I give my life completely to you. Maybe this is your morning today and you're realizing, Lance, it's been far too long. I've been, I've been living in this borrowed ground. Part of, me, part of me is mad at God because of how things have turned out in my marriage. Part of me is mad at God by how things have turned out in the provision of my life. And so you've been living in this land of hoping to get to heaven, but kind of mad at God. And if that's you this morning, I want you to say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. I want to be right with you. I don't need to get re-saved. I just need to get realigned. If that's you, just say, Jesus, I want you. I want all of you. I want to give my life completely to you. Fill me today with your spirit. I want to move into the land of promise. God, this world we live in is shaking so bad. It's so desperate for hope. And Lord, I know that you brought us here to be hands and feet, to be you on the planet. I pray that you would empower your church. I pray that you would fill your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have this friend of mine who's not here today. I know that because his wife and him were texting me. They couldn't be here today for whatever reason. But I'll tell you his story a little bit. He, he walked out of Mormonism about eight weeks ago. He walked out of Mormonism and walked into our church on accident, for real, full on on accident. He said what kept him was some greeter at the front door that said, welcome home. And he was like, I was ready to walk back out, but somebody said, welcome home. And I was like, ah, I can't leave now. And so out of sheer human guilt, he came into the church service. He and I had been meeting like once a week for the last eight weeks. About four or five weeks ago, he surrendered his life to Christ in the office. It's crazy. He's been here. It's awesome. Get this. So we were texting the other day and he asked questions. I should read you the questions, but he's like, I just want to know. He said, so, okay, so let me get this right. Because in, in the Mormon church, there's requirements upon you to get your salvation thing. And so he says, okay, so what, what's the, what do I do? What, what, what are the jumping jacks I need to do? What, what are the push-ups I need to do to, to keep and maintain a salvation? It's been fun. So, so I, somehow he's talking about salvation. He's talking about this whole journey. And he says, so what's the requirement upon me now as a Christian? What do I have to do? And I, I began to unpack this thing, and that's a huge question. And we're working through the answer to that question. But it got me thinking. It just got me thinking about the rest of us. And, and so many of us who, maybe you did walk out of that, or maybe you haven't, or maybe you're in the midst of whatever. I just wonder sometimes, he, he said, Lance, where's the accountability for the rest of the church that says, this is what I have to do to walk out my salvation? Does everyone feel like there's a responsibility on their lives? All of the Christians at church, because I don't know. And I said, great question. I said, I don't know. I'll ask them. <laughs> Do you feel the weight of that responsibility to walk out your salvation? Because there's a lost and dying world that are going to accidentally show up into your life and ask you questions about your Bible 
more importantly, ask you questions about your Jesus? And are you equipped to lead them to a place of hope? Because they're looking for it. Amen. Let's just stand to your feet. God bless you. Be encouraged. Jesus, thank you so much for today. We know how you feel about the Green Bay Packers. So, Lord, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. Give somebody a hug before you leave. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.